My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. Chapter 9 Jules had made her way to the place and laid out the contents of the bundle which were wrapped up in a large light blue towel. There was a pure white dress made of northern linen with simple Donegal lace to trim the neck and cuffs. It was decorated at its base with seed heads and ovals but was otherwise unadorned. The warmer overcape was light cream tweed woven in their village from lamb's wool. There was a garland of flowers for her hair and some clean under things and pads, which unlike the cotton ones her mother had given her this morning, were made of soft moss and wool felt. There was a bar of soap that smelled of lavender and roses. She could see the flecks of their petals in the bar as she had made herself with the help of two local soap makers, Kate and Vanessa. The washcloth was beautifully patterned felt. She said the invocations to begin the ritual bathing using the fresh, cold water from the stream. She stripped and shivered in the spring day and was glad of the sunlight filtering through the birch branches above. She tried not to hurry but was relieved to slip on the robe and cape at last. She was nearly ready. She finished by calling to the spirits of the four quarters. Even though this would be repeated, she must find their meaning now alone. Starting with the east, she moved and looked there, able to see a little out across the land. What was its meaning to her now? Sunrise. Yes, new things, like Rowan, who'd come from the East so recently. She was going to chastise herself for being distracted by him, but then relaxed, stilled her self-critic and accepted her thoughts. Metaphor or reality, the new dawn, that energy like that of her own youth, she realized, excited by the new. That was the East. She thanked the spirit of the East for its gift. Turning south, she immediately felt the warm sun in her face and thought of summer. Everything about that made her think of abundance, fruits and fun. It was easy to thank the South for its gifts. To the West, she could always find the sea because the sky colour somehow lightened in a unique way in that direction. It was unpredictable, like the autumn storms. Opposite the spring one, she realized, and thought of her father, his time getting older but not old. She was afraid to face that way for long. It stirred something in her, and she felt unsettled, but breathed into the feeling and accepted it. She thought of the calm of her mother and how she joked they were in the spring and autumn of their years. Her mother said she was working her way out of fertility, just as Jules was working her way in. It was a naturally turbulent time. She felt a little better and thanked the West Spirit for its gifts. As a breeze with the scent of saltiness touched her lip, as if in reply, she turned north. Summers opposite, yet both were often quieter times, 
the frenzy of activity, followed by rebalancing mid-spring and autumn, slowed till solstice sand still, she'd been taught. She loved the winter calm and time for family celebrations, her father at home telling stories and her grandmother telling them to wrap up against the cold. She knew that winter was a dream time for imagining, not doing, but she could see that the older people didn't like it as much as she did and wondered if it was because it was a kind of death time too. The smell of the spring earth came to her then and she looked at the ground where well-rotten leaves and fallen timbers were being pushed aside by the new growth that took life from their decay. She smiled and said her last thank you to the North Spirit for its gifts. Then she turned and started to make her way down the familiar route to home. Rowan was getting bored by the circle, but he didn't dare do anything other than wait. The women had come, settled themselves. It would be very obvious if he left now. Just when he thought about lying back and having a nap, he saw Jules coming. The women hadn't seen her yet, and he felt for a moment like he was the only one there. She looked so different, he almost wondered if it was really her. Her hair hung down from under a crown of flowers. She walked like she was gliding or floating, and everything about her was bright and filled with light as the sun reflected on her clothes. It nearly made him look away. He was awed, and he felt like he was in a fairy tale for a moment, until the women saw her too. With a sigh, he became a bystander again. The women rose, rustling, smiling, cooing, ahs, and other appreciative sounds. They parted, and Jules went to the centre of the circle, where she was joined by her mother and older women. They stood in silence for a few moments, and then the grandmother spoke, her voice surprisingly loud and clear. To begin our ceremony to welcome Jules to the circle of women, she cried out. We must first call to our helpers in the invisible realm. We start with the Celtic triple goddess. I stand here for the Kalyak, the crone. She gave a wry smile, and some of the women laughed lightly as she continued. May I bring your wisdom and understanding that death is the great life-bringer. Welcome destruction. Next, Jules' mother spoke. I stand here for Gronya, warrior, enchantress, creative one who has given birth to life now grown, and now... I can gift the world with arts, music, dance and story. May they flow through our celebration today. Finally, Jules herself spoke. I stand here for breed. May I bring hope and the start of new things as the spring water flows with purity. May I bring truth and clarity to our celebration. Rowan was riveted. Then they all spoke as if in a song, in perfect harmony. We three call on the spirit of earth, our mother, and all her creatures that are our relations, from our rock foundations to the life in the soil that grows all things, and the veins of water that flowing from icy mountains to warm seas, and all the swimmers, crawlers, and walkers on Mother Earth. We call to Father Sky, and the sun and the moon beyond shining their luminous energy on the flying things and sharing mists and rains and winds that replenish us. We call to the people who have been given a place amongst it to try to understand and see the wonder of it all and charged with celebration and gratitude for life, matter and energy that we can see all that is possible in the universe. 
We call on our ancestors, asking for their insight and wisdom gained for their mistakes, their misdirections, to guide us and help us in our celebrations. We call on the voices in the four directions to bring their spirits to this place today, from four different places in the circle. Rowan heard invocations. From four different places in the circle, Rowan heard invocations. Had he known it, they were echoes of those heard and spoken by Jules on her own not long before. Then, as if on cue, everyone sat down. Rowan could see better, but they weren't doing much at first until he noticed a sound, the beginning of a hum that seemed to have no single point of origin. It was a moving thing, around the circle and in and out of the center. It went on and on. Rowan lost all sense of time as he was carried away on waves of sound. The birds, the river, the breeze in the trees, all became part of the sound, as did the smaller children's playful voices. He felt like he was part of the vibrations. The boundaries between things seemed to be blurring. He saw Jules laying down, eased by two of the older women. The humming went on. He laid back too. He looked up to the sky and felt like he was falling into it. Slowly, he closed his eyes and dreamed. He'd no idea how long he'd been asleep, but he came to and slowly realized the humming had stopped. There was activity in the circle. The women had moved close to Jules and he could see they all had some kind of bowls and they were dipping their hands into them and leaning forward with lots of mumbling. He felt a little afraid for the girl surrounded as she was by so many women all doing something to her. Then suddenly they pulled up and formed into a corridor, a long line that stretched all the way down to the river. And then he gasped because Jules stood up now and she was no longer white. She had been covered from top to bottom in what looked like thick layers of red and deep brown clay. Jules wobbled a bit as she began to move down the corridor of women, who were still smearing her from their bowls. He could hear some words in the mumbles now. Earth, maiden, you're one with the earth. Fertility flows through. You have the power of creation. You have the power of nurturing. Jules reached the river and kept walking. Her mother and grandmother were the last women in the lines, and they stepped into the river, either side of her. Rowan could just make out what they were saying as they lowered Jules into the deepest part of the stream, and the water flowed in circles and eddies streaked with the red clay. Death. Destruction. Renewal. Death. Destruction. Renewal. Rowan found he was experiencing an odd mix of emotions that he couldn't easily name. They seemed to be a version of embarrassment, fascination, weirded outness, and deeply challenged, all at the same time. The women had turned, and Jules was coming back out of the river. Not all the clay had washed away, and her clothes were limp and almost skin-coloured. The illusion was strengthened when someone stepped forward with a new pinkish robe. Without him seeing more than a glimpse of her body, the old skin-like clothes fell to the ground and she stepped into a new skin. There were smiles all round now and she was wrapped and a belt tied firmly about her and a lively music started to play. The women were moving and pulling Jules into a dance. She was smiling too, and the tempo kept increasing. The smaller children were soon in the thick of it, and Rowan saw his chance to slip away for a bit before someone thought to try to pull him in, as he saw beginning to happen to some of the other reluctant older boys closer to his age. He slipped along the path to his wagon and went inside. He didn't know what to think of what he'd seen. Part of him 
thought it was so foreign, even though he'd been to plenty of community celebrations before. Some had even called to spirit in similar ways. But he'd been younger then and more interested in the games and stories and feasts. He'd never seen any significance in the words. But today, he'd really felt something. He knew it was authentic. And more than that, the reality of the dream he recalled during the humming song was bringing up all sorts of forgotten experiences in a new way that somehow made sense to him. He couldn't put words easily on the experience. He thought, perhaps, he could make a painting or a song, but he knew that anything he tried when listened to or interpreted by someone else would never really come close to the experience. He laughed then, remembering a series of lessons on comparative ancient religions that he'd taken as an option in his learning path. He'd found most of it, bit over his head, and most of the other participants were way older than him. But the teacher had tried to explain very common themes and values in all the ancient religions. She'd explained that because of economics and politics and agriculture and the mining era, how power had entered religion and blinded people to the commonality. Rowan had been moved to ask a question about how all of these religions could possibly be similar. They seemed so confusing in all their rituals. The teacher had answered with another story. Imagine three people went up a mountain from three different countries, as it was possible in those times. One is rich, one is middle class, and one is poor. One lives in the city, one a town, and one on the edge of a small village. One is from a huge family, one a medium-sized family, and one is an orphan. One is sunny and cheerful by nature, one is sensible, and one is a fearful dreamer. One is a man, one is a woman, and one is a child. On the mountain, it's a clear day, but off to the north there are some clouds, and the sun is low in the west. Each person faces a different direction. Just as they sit, one silently, one talking, the other listening, a strong feeling of something bigger than themselves comes over them. They have three words they use to describe this feeling. Spiritual, energetic, and sacred. The experience is strong and profound for each of them making sense of many stories in their lives and their culture. Then, they go down off the mountain, talk to people they meet, and then, through songs and stories and actions, they tell people about this amazing experience on the mountain. They tell it in their ways, through their experiences and their cultures and their lived understanding of the world, and each become a leader of three new religions, very different, and yet at the same time, very similar to the others. Rowan thought he understood now. He had just had an experience, one unique to him, and he would try to hold on to it and not talk about it or try to explain it to anyone. He realized the music outside had gotten quieter and he was feeling hungry. He stretched and had a look. It was getting late in the day. He hopped down and wandered back to the circle area. There were a few dancers, but most people were sitting around the big fire that now burned well, and they were eating. Rowan looked around and saw where they had gotten their food. There were long tables packed with all sorts of dishes, hot and cold salads and stews. He joined the now small queue and filled a plate. Then he went and sat by the fire. He caught sight of Jules across the flames. She met his eyes and smiled shyly at him. He returned the smile with a similar shyness. They stayed around the fire with women coming and going. Little ones were taken inside and the chat was easy. An older woman asked him all about himself and he found it was easy to tell her about his parents, the city, his journey so far. She was particularly attentive. He did his best to answer her questions about 
what methods Jules had used to treat him by the river when she found him. He knew most of this from Jules, but felt he didn't want to let her down in the eyes of this woman as she examined his report. She called to Jules across the fire. Good job healing this young man, Jules. Looks like you've got the family gift, my dear. One little tip, though. If he's been any colder, you might have had more of a problem when you heated him up. Respiratory difficulties, and it's lucky he didn't have a heart attack. Jules looked alarmed. Her mother came to the rescue. Ali, leave her be. She did very well. She turned to Jules, and Rowan could hear her explaining some of the finer details of helping someone if they had severe hypothermia. Jules seemed very attentive. His questioner left him be for a bit and started telling a story to the circle about a healer in the family who had lived during the collapses and the time the healer had helped a man who'd been a big businessman, used to all the trappings of private care. She laughed often as she told the story, because apparently the old healer had a great sense of humour and really played up the persona of a witch just to wind up the businessman. The storyteller finished by saying, That was your great-grandmother, Jules. Her name was Judith. This started an evening of stories about the women in Jules's family. There were obviously a number of aunts and relatives in the circle, but also neighbours and friends, and the stories varied depending on who was telling them, which led to a good deal of heated arguments over the details. Rowan eventually saw Jules and her mother heading to bed, and he slipped off on his own again. Rowan wandered around. He was going to head to bed, but he was restless, and he came to sit under another tree near the cottage, and there seemed to be a long room at the back that he hadn't noticed before. Out of the window, he could hear one of the older women telling some of the children who hadn't managed to get to sleep yet a story. He thought it was probably the older boys. He listened. This is the seeds of the new story, the woman said. Listen now. A long time ago, the children sat amongst the destruction that they had wrought. Some of them had destroyed not knowing why they did it. Others had been busy making something else, excited by their ability to make newer and newer things, shinier and shinier pieces of glowing invention. They were proud, and they didn't notice the growing destruction. There were some children who did notice. There were others who were hurt, and many, many died. Some children had been shouting, singing, dancing, screaming, stop, but now they were exhausted and many of them wept in grief, the ones with deeper intelligences, super smart. They thought they knew how to fix it, but now they wept. They wept the loudest because they could not believe how much they had lost. They were angry and heartbroken. The children turned to their mother and said, we're sorry. It's not fair. It wasn't fair. We did not know what you had given us, and now it lies in ruins. What is wrong with us? Why did we do it? Why did we do it? Did you make us this way? Is it our fault? Is it your fault? Can you forgive us? And they wept and wept until it became a lamentation. And even those with the greatest of intelligence joined in the lament. Then silence sat upon them. They looked up to the sky and they sensed their father had come back and had a lesson for them. This time they listened. Their father said, listen to your mother. One by one the children turned to their mother each held the question in their hearts. Can you still love me? They listened. They listened harder. They waited. And only then 
did she begin to speak. A long time ago, I too was a child. The seed that made me grew in fertile waters. It would seem to you to be impossible, unlikely, rare, even random. But that is the way of seeds. They scatter. Things carry them. And you can never know where exactly they may have a chance of springing to life. When I was a child, I played and nurtured my own little garden. I sang and talked with all my new friends. I danced and laughed and cried. Sometimes things didn't go how I imagined. And I also felt frustration. I was not given to anger, for I was a sensitive, creative soul who loved to make things. And I realized as I grew older, I knew that I wanted to have children of my own. The children sat up thinking this was their part in their story. But the mother said, You are not my children. The children gasped. How could this be? They knew this was their mother. They knew that much of what they had destroyed she had made, and they wondered if she was punishing them. Is it true that I made you? When their rustling and shifting had settled, and they were ready to listen again. Yes, it is. I did have a purpose for you, as I had for all the things I made. And they looked around at the destruction and lowered their heads again. Their mother paused to look upon each child with such love in her eyes, the children could barely believe it. But there it was. Her love for them was shining upon them in her gaze, and they found that they could love her back. They found they could also look from one to another. They could also see love. They cried out their thanks in every way they could. They felt this love grow all around them. And then their mother said, Now I will sing you a song of my gratitude for you, because you have fulfilled your purpose. You have sent my seeds. One day I may have the chance to have real children. The children looked very confused and asked how this was possible. But then their mother began to sing. The children knew parts of the song, for she had sung it to them long before. Rowan listened and heard the thin, reedy voice of the unsteady older woman singing, I began in fire. I began in water so you could breathe. I made the plants to grow from sun and from soil. I turned that into oil long before you were born. I began in fire. I began in water. So you could breathe. I made the plants from sunlight and soil. You and your family ate and grew and flew, ate, 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 all ate one to another and flew some more. I began in fire and water so you could breathe. I made the plants from sunlight and soil. Before you were, I made the oil for you.
And with my oil you began to toil, some to fire, some to water, some to air, some to ice, some to earth and new birth. You have made my seed so strong. Thank you from my open heart. My strong seeds are on their way, traveling in your shiny things. They will travel far away, some to fertile waters in a galaxy. So farewell, my lovely children. Some of you will pass away, and your families too have gone before you. You were fire, you were water, you were ice, and you were earth, and you have helped me. Give birth. Rowan heard the end of the song and wondered at its meaning. He stretched stiffly, dreamily, walked back to his wagon and went to sleep where many dreams passed through his mind. So that was the last couple of chapters and the next time I finish the whole book. So what I was trying to achieve in the writing was a couple of different things. One of them was the connection to rituals of transformation for young people when rites of passage were significant part of our lives and they still exist in the modern world in different forms especially if you still have a religious practice then there are some rites of passage and I think young people essentially create their own rites of passage now in one form or another something that brings them up to the edge of change but without the support of those that have gone before them and that missing village, that missing sense of the elders and also the story or the narrative that helps you find your place within the greater whole. I think those are the pieces that are missing in rites of passage for young people today. So that was what I was exploring. And the inspiration for the dressing and the way that the young woman comes into her own in her white clothing that they then use the red mud and then she goes through into the river and washes that off and comes back out again. That's a blend of inspiration from stories that I had read of different cultures, but I'm pretty sure that the main one was an image that I saw of a young Native American woman walking down into her village in a rite of passage wearing white buckskin and then being covered with a red ochre clay. And I thought that was amazing to sort of connect with the first menses and the first blood of a young woman becoming fertile with the earth and all that goes into the earth and the fertility of the earth and then the waters, the river that she's being connected to all the way through the story that Jules has her place further upstream, that she's followed the stream to find Rowan. And now she's going through a kind of birth, death, renewal, transformation ritual. And I also wanted to put in some of the ordinariness that I think was contained within those kinds of rituals in cultures. We visited different places as a family and at least one occasion we came across a corn ceremony in the States in a Pueblo, a Native American reservation. When we came around the corner through this village that we were picking our way through to find the big area where the corn dancing was going on as the ceremonial celebration of the harvest, 
it was mud brick or adobe buildings in a little village sort of style streets and dirt. And then suddenly we came across what was going on in the center of the village. And what we saw was the most incredible timelessness of, on the one hand, people still dancing the corn dance in traditional dress with traditional steps in large numbers. And we even found a postcard of that same costume, that same ceremony in the 1800s and nothing had changed. But what was around them was the community sitting on deck chairs, having cans of soda and beers and picnics. And that was really familiar to me from Celtic flacules or festivals or Scottish Highland games that I had visited. The idea that although ceremony is happening in some form or traditional arts are on display or music, there's still, it's a day out and everyone's having fun arriving. And it was that continuity. And I suppose that really inspired a lot of what I was trying to mix the sacredness of ceremony, but with the ordinariness of women in the kitchen making food and dancing and people just having fun. And then the latter part where Rowan is witness to this and where he's he's basically the bystander like I was in the Native American reservation. He, he's come from a city or a remnant city, as I imagine, where he's come from and the these remnant towns that he's visited. And he doesn't have this connection to ancient ceremony that Jules's family have had for more generations. They've held on to it from the past and they've woven their own stuff into that and their own understandings. And it's sort of that progressive revelation of each generation just adding and developing. And so there's this song story that Rowan hears through the window and that I've included in the book and I would love to think about it, its integration more. But it came from a, a smaller separate story, if you like, a, a co little composite piece that I have told around Firesides at our place in Wicklow for quite a few years. And it, it, it actually transformed into that form on a trip that I took to Findhorn in Scotland. And I was sitting around a fire very late at night with just two other people. And I just, it just changed. The whole story changed from where it had come from and it became that version. And where it had come from, the original story was a synthesis of a few different things, but very much inspired Stephen Harrod Booner, who writes about sacred herbal medicine and all sorts of traditions from the States. And he's been gifted by Native Americans, lots of plant wisdom from their traditions. And he writes incredible books about plant intelligence and the imaginal realm and lost language of plants and all sorts of things. And I did a workshop with Stephen in Cork uh, quite a few years ago. And there was a story that he told, or this is a piece of my story as well, that I then wove about the discovery that there's a biologist called Lynn Margolis, who's written a great deal about uh, bacteria, and I believe now also fungi. And she had made some comment to Stephen about how at the microscopic level, some of the bacteria she had looked just like some of the satellites that are in orbit around our planet. And then that had led Stephen to think about the fact that there are in fact bacteria on those pieces of space equipment that humans have made. And then another idea that came was a question that he asked us in the workshop was if humans were part of a wider organism, the concept of Gaia, the planet, and if all the creatures and all the species on the planet just sit in a particular niche and they serve an ecological function in their niche, but we don't know if they know that that's what they do. So if a bee is going from flower to flower, attracted in by their display and gathering nectar to make honey, 
does the bee know that it's a pollinator in the system? Or is it just doing and expressing what it wants to express? And Stephen suggested that one thing that we had in common as a species across millennia and culture and distance was a kind of a, a desire to see what was across the river, a, a migratory adventurer desire, if you like, to climb a mountain, to see what's over an ocean, to look up, and he kind of makes a joke about this, of like being the only monkey that looks up in the sky and goes, I think we could do that, we could get some wings and we could maybe fly, or we could see the ocean and we could go down underneath it, even though we don't breathe deep in the ocean and this technology that we developed to go these further places all the way to the point where we put stuff in space and so he kind of had this great imagining that Gaia the planet could want us to do that could have created that impulse that we assume of course with a centralized human ego that we do know what we're doing and we know the reasons we do things, but lovely kind of shift of the human ego to say, well, maybe you've, you're serving an ecological function for Gaia that you don't know. You're you're following your impulse to do these things just like other creatures that are on the planet. And so he had a kind of a notion that if you were a planet-sized organism and you wanted to replicate yourself then one of the ways that that might be done is the same way that our planet is supposed to have begun when there was the primordial soup that doesn't get started into life, even if, and this is woven from other writers and thinkers, even if humans take all of the ingredients of that primordial soup and have enzymes have different things and they, they, despite all the different movies about bringing something to life, even with intention and science and, and experimentation, we don't spark life into being at all. It's not been something that humans can bring something to life. And what did do it, so the ingredients were there that might later create the supports for life. But the suspicion is that what did do it was bacterial arrivals maybe on a meteorite, maybe from another planet. I mean, you can go back and back and go, but where does it start originally? Big questions. But what was just interesting and fun to explore was the notion that maybe humans who are very self-deprecating these days because of the damage that human systems have done on the planet. I just liked thinking about what if we were actually serving a purpose and that some of what we're doing is a good thing to be doing. And so that kind of went a bit further than to thinking about dieback in an organism. So it's something like an oak tree that takes many, many years to pull up and suck up nutrients from all of its environment in order to grow to be a vast oak tree. And it takes a really long time before it drops any acorns to make new oak. And even when it does do that, it tends to have a really big oak mass, meaning lots and lots of acorns, about every 17 years or so. And in between that time, when it has dropped, it actually does a series of dieback. It kind of pulls back in and waits in until it can gather back up a lot of resource. So I suppose what I was playing with, and it came very much from the notion of what story are we telling our children about us? It's one thing as adults to think about our responsibilities on the planet, to think about what we've been doing and what we need to do different. But for me, it felt really wrong to talk to little children. And this was pre the time of the climate strikes and the young people becoming very afraid for their future globally. But I would hear environmental friends or people talking and they, they wanted to tell kids, oh, well, you know, we've done these bad things on the planet. And I'd also hear adults saying to each other, we are a cancer on the planet. And and that idea of being a totally negative influence. So I, I thought, well, at least to children, even if it's a fantasy story, we need to tell a different story than a guilt-ridden, sin-of-the-world kind of story for children that you're like a lot of the old stories in the domineering 
worst versions of, of religions that say, well, you're born bad and you've got to redeem yourself or humans are all about this, these other impulses to greed and so on. So the story about dieback is sort of imagining that we've got a planet that stored up incredible fossil fuel resources through plant life over huge, huge millennia. And then different species evolved and then we evolve and we have this impulse given to us to go over every river, mountain, ocean, into the sky, into space. And we're also, while we're doing that, using that resource, but we also have been making antibiotics and different things like this and breeding superbugs and super viruses and super fungi and, or whatever it is that ends up on our space junk in space. And we've finally got to the stage where we've pushed some spaceships off out of our out of our orbits off to the solar system out potentially beyond the solar system. And I like to imagine then for the story for children that we've done our job and that somewhere a bit of our space junk will crash into some primordial soup on another planet and the bacteria will take off and there'll be a Gaia, another planet with life and bacteria that evolve and that like the older creation stories of a lot of indigenous people, there's a theme within them. I think again, it's probably a Native American story that talks about the creator having made us and looked at how plentiful we were. And apparently this story goes, the creator went to the animals and said, look, they're becoming very plentiful. I need you to make some diseases and things you can pass to the humans to lower their numbers. And the creatures and animals, said, they all said, yeah, we could do that. And then the creator went to the flying things and the insects and the buzzing things. The creator says, I would like you to make a disease that you can pass to these humans so as they become in check and less plentiful. And then lastly, the creator goes to Plank Kingdom and says, I need you to do the same. I need you to make a disease. And the plants say, no, we evolved and we made the conditions that allow these humans to live. We made the air that they breathe, the food that they eat. So they are our children and we cannot make diseases for them. So what we will do for every disease that the creatures or the flying things give, we will give a medicine to heal them. I had this experience when I wrote the story version that Rowan hears through the window and the little song that he hears through the window. As I said, I, I wrote that in Findhorn at a conference called Climate Change and Consciousness. And it was about the way we look at ourselves, I suppose. And it was about all of the scary climate science. It had some amazing people around the world who've been pointing and looking at what's been going on for a very long time. And one of the other groups that were invited and supported to come were indigenous people from all over the world, from every continent. And every time they had the opportunity to speak or facilitate a workshop, there was a juxtaposition of, yes, they were absolutely under threat. They, they had clearly the indication that they'd been pushed to the most marginal places, genocide and extraction of their lands from traditional places that they'd lived had been ongoing and the only places they left to have where the most marginal, the highest mountains, the farthest out deserts of Australia and so on. And that by being in those places, they were now, sadly, vastly under threat again, because the last resources that big capitalist extractive systems want are in the remote places now. So whether that was Arctic oceans going after drilling and oil and fossil fuels or fish, or whether it was the Amazonian basins and the logging and the tar sands and extraction, or wherever it was in the world, were under threat from something. Fracking was one in Aboriginal peoples of Australia were under threat on their lands again. And yet, while we understood and heard about all of that, simultaneously, their message to a mainly white 
a mainly colonial audience, made up a lot of people from Europe and from America, that the main message that these indigenous elders that were there would say to the audience was, the world wants you here. And it was about rekindling connection, rekindling love. It was just this beautiful message of incredible power when juxtaposed to all that had been taken and destroyed. And it was like a call to remember and to wake up to connection and love and purpose. And suppose for me, that's what I was trying to do in finding stories and being one part of a story that Rowan hears is the idea that the earth wants us and that what he's hearing about the children, it's the earth speaking to the children, the humans, as one part of the children of the earth with a purpose to go with their shiny things and then to go in to die back like the oak does to reduce potentially back down to simpler living, a slow decline in human numbers and maybe waiting for fossil fuel to be laid back down again with the amount of carbon in our atmosphere. Plant life will certainly be abundant if we don't heat up to the point where all life is threatened. So it just felt like rekindling older skills, having more understanding of regeneration and conservation and herbal medicines, older methods of taking care of our food and our fuel and our housing and weaving those with our modern understanding. That's, I suppose, what a lot of this book has been about. And you'll get to hear the last chapters and final batch of this podcast at Samhain.